0: My name is Matt Howe, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills, Um, also the student pastor here at Anderson Hills. Um, Just being completely honest and transparent with you, this has been a a, a difficult week. Um, Not so much for me personally, um, but I think just for our community. Um, I think our community is hurting. Um, I think our community is um, maybe just scrambling a little bit, trying to... To figure some things out, and um, you know, God and His providential wisdom, um, He knows just exactly what we need and when we need it. And uh, man, this morning's message just I think aligns so beautifully um, with kind of where our community is this week because we are we are in uh, week three of a six weeks six week series uh, on Jonah, and uh, you may remember that in week one. Um, we talked about how God um, clearly called out to Jonah and told Jonah, Hey, Jonah, I've got a mission for you. I've got a plan for you. And it is for you to go to the people of Nineveh and to deliver my message. And Jonah, like so many of us, just immediately responded with obedience And went and did exactly as God was wanting. Okay, so you know the story, right? Like the opposite happened. Jonah, like, he was like, oh, no, not me. Maybe this guy over here. Maybe Josh, maybe Jack, maybe Jeff, but not Jonah. And not me. I'm not doing that. And so Jonah disobeyed and Jonah went and he boarded a ship. Headed to Tarshish because Tarshish was so much more attractive. There were good things happening. There was wealth exchanging hands. It was the place to be, not Nineveh. Nothing good was happening in Nineveh. But last week, we talked about how God didn't just give up on Jonah. God didn't just, like, abandon plan A and go immediately to plan B. Like, well, okay, Jonah's not going to listen So I guess there is Jeff over here. I guess I'll go to Jeff. I don't even know if there's a Jeff in the Bible. But, um, you know, (laughs) poor Jeff, right? But no, he stays after Jonah. In a relentless pursuit of Jonah's heart and of Jonah's life, um, God sends a storm. At sea, and the storm basically bears down and attacks this kind of tiny ship. And, and the ship, and, and all the lives therein, all the men who were there, the, the, the guys who were there on the ship, as well as Jonah, their lives were literally in danger. And so the men go to Jonah, they wake him up, they're they're talking to him, dialoguing with him. Jonah's like, clearly, this is on me, this is my fault, this is the God that I serve coming after me in his relentless pursuit, toss me overboard. And as we talked last week, the men did everything they could to not have to toss Jonah overboard. They tried by their own power, by their own strength to get themselves out of the storm, but they couldn't do it. And so they gave in. And they tossed Jonah overboard. And as we saw in the scriptures last week, the second that Jonah's feet hit the water, the seas became calm, the winds stopped their blowing. But you see, Jonah wasn't out of trouble. Because here Jonah was floundering in the middle of an open sea, drowning, literally, in his own issues. And so what did God do? We saw at the end of the scripture last week that God sent A big fish, some would say a whale. We're not going to get in that debate today. But God sends a big fish, and the fish swallows Jonah up. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. This is Jonah chapter 2, the first 10 verses. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit." When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the lord and the lord commanded the fish and it vomited jonah onto dry land this is a this is powerful when you i mean when you think of this in the context of of little felt board jonah in the mouth of little felt board big fish this is not that powerful But when you think of the words of this scripture in the context of everything that has happened to our community this week, these words are powerful. Salvation comes from you and you alone, O Lord. So what's happening here? What are we witnessing? Let me tell you what we're witnessing We are witnessing a change of heart. We are witnessing a broken man. Jonah's broken. He's at his wit's end. How many of you have felt as if you were in the depths of the sea, as if you were drowning in your circumstances, as if you could feel the mountains beneath getting closer and closer to your feet? Because you were sinking. You were sinking. The seaweed had literally entangled your life. That's where Jonah was. It was broken. But what we see here in in this passage of chapter 2 of the book of Jonah is we see repentance. From the belly of a whale, we see repentance. Now, interestingly enough, the scriptures tell us at the end of chapter 1 that Jonah was in this fish for quite some time. In fact, the scriptures say that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. What is it about that number three in the Bible? Maybe there's some semblance there, I don't know. In the belly of the well for three days and three nights. Now, this prayer took me about a minute and a half to read. So I don't think that it took Jonah three full days and nights to say this. So what do we glean from that? Well, we remember that there was no pen and paper in the belly of a fish. So Jonah wasn't writing these words at the same time that he was, he was penning them, right? He penned them much later. And so my guess is Jonah gave us kind of this picture of repentant Jonah the kind of Jonah that we all get ourselves to eventually. But that was probably not Jonah in the first 24 to 48 hours inside the belly of this fish. I mean, you can imagine what Jonah's words were probably like. I'd say it's fairly safe to say that his attitude And his prayers and the tone of his voice and the intensity of his prayers probably changed throughout the duration of his stay. Knowing Jonah, I would say that initially it sounded something like, I can't believe this is happening to me. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Do you know what these people in Nineveh will do to me if I go there and tell them, declare, I have a message from the Lord, right? Jonah's first words were probably, what is that smell? That's terrible. No doubt, it was when Jonah was later, much later, reflecting on his time there that he recorded these words. And yes, they were words that meant a lot to him because he had finally arrived at that place. Why is it, church, that we always wait until the last possible second to drop to our knees? Why is it that we wait until we've been cast into the sea and the seaweed has entangled us and the waters have engulfed us and we've been stuck inside the belly of a whale for three days before we finally cry out to the Lord? Why do we wait so long? Why do we wait until the bills have stacked up beyond return? Why do we wait until the marriage is hanging on by a thread? Why do we wait until the, the person that we love so much is literally slipping away from us? Why do we wait for so long to really, truly cry out to the Lord? Prayer should be our first priority, not our last resort. It wasn't until Jonah experienced fear and loneliness and despair inside the belly of that great big fish, it wasn't until those things had happened that he finally reached out to the Lord, that he finally cried out to the Lord from the belly of that whale. In his despair, Jonah used words from the Psalms in which he had put into his heart to bring him comfort, to claim God's promise. To remind him that God was in fact near and to remind him that God does in fact hear and answer the prayers of his people. God's desire for us is the same that it was for Jonah. God's desire for Jonah was that he would humble himself, that he would be merciful, that he would be gracious, that he would show God's mercy and grace to the people of Nineveh. God's desire is that we accept our low position. Not that we think less of ourselves, but that we think of ourselves less. God's desire is that we make him and his will our first priority, and not a last resort. Listen to this promise. I love this promise in Scripture from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then i will hear from heaven i will forgive their sin and i will heal their land there's a lot of meat in there that is not a vegetable passage that is a steak prime rib kind of passage i mean this is one amazing Promise. Let's again put it into the context of our time, our lives. If my people, his people being the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know that we realize this. I don't know that you realize this. I don't know that the church is operating in such a way that we reflect this. But we are the people of God. You are the people of God. You are members together in one body, the body of whom? The body of Christ, of which he is the head. And we are the body. We are the people of God. And the Bible says that if we, the people of God, and by the way, I don't mean little C Church. I mean big C Church. This week alone. I received phone calls from not one, not two, not three, not four. I sound like LeBron James. Um, Nobody knows that story. But anyway, um, multiple churches in this community called. Multiple churches in this community have been emailing back and forth. What do we do? It's time to take a stand. We are the people of God. And the Bible says here that if my people will accept their low position, then I will exalt them. If my people will humble themselves. Remember, he who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be humbled. Remember that? That's Jesus If my church will think of itself less and think of the world around them more, if they will pray and will seek my face, I mean truly seek my face. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be going there here in just a few short weeks. We're going to be living in the Sermon on the Mount for like three months. I don't know. But we're going to be talking about this passage, and Jesus says, you know, if you will ask and it will be given unto you seek and you will find knock and the door will be open and i've talked in here before about how this isn't like a gentle um, almost apologetic ask like well god i don't really want to bother you but just in case like it's a crying out it's not a knocking like You know, like you knock when you need to ask your neighbor something, but you're hoping maybe your neighbor's not home, but just in case they are, you're going to knock so light that they can't really hear you so they don't feel threatened to answer the door. It's not that kind of knock. This is like a banging on the door, right? This is a seeking in such a way where you're ripping up the house trying to find that thing that you're looking for. God wants us to seek His face with that kind of passion, with that kind of motivation, with that kind of enthusiasm. Seek after him. If my people will turn from their wicked ways, if my people will stop running back to their sins, if my people will stop choosing what feels good over the only one who is truly good, if my people will do these things, then I will forgive their sin. And I don't mean that I'll forgive it like humans forgive. I mean that I'll forgive it and I'll forget it. I will remove any record of that wrong. That's what, the, that's what God does. You understand that, right? When God forgives something, he says, not only am I going to forgive you, but that's not on your record anymore. We humans, we forgive differently. We forgive, but we keep a record so that the next time you wrong me, I can pull that back out. I can go to your file. Mm-hmm, let's see here, Jeff. I'm just going to use Jeff today. I'm on a roll with Jeff. You know, let's just pull out Jeff. And Jeff, what did you do last month? Yeah, and we did, you know, talk about that, and we kind of worked it through. But Jeff, This is strike two. That's not the way God works. Praise God that's not the way he works, but that's not the way he works. If my people will do these things, then I will forgive it. I will forgive it. I'm not going to file it away for some later time. I'm going to erase it, tear out the page in which it is written. And once I've done that, I'm going to bring healing, and I'm going to bring hope back into your life. Mm, That's good. That's the God that we serve. This is God's plan A. But listen, church, Jonah wasn't interested in God's plan A. Jonah was a lost cause, right? I mean, not only had Jonah rejected God's offer, but Jonah had flat, away, flat, flat run away from God. Praise God that he is gracious and slow to anger. That even when we are not humble, repentant, prayerful, forgiving, merciful, gracious, loving, God still is. He's all those things. Even when we do not initially do what God calls us to do or go where God wants us to go, God doesn't give up on us. You see, Jonah was not a lost cause. We would look at the story and say, oh, absolutely he was, and he w- God would say, no. Nope. Just going to have to stay on him. You guys feel that way with your kids sometimes? Like, they're not a lost cause, <laughs> I know they're going to overcome this. I know they're going to be able to move past this. I just got to stay on them. But sometimes staying on them doesn't mean literally staying on them all the time. Sometimes staying on them means putting your arm around them and telling them that you love them. Sometimes it means apologizing for the way that you've acted, for the thing you've said or the thing you've done. See, we we already have a culture in this community of kids who are stressed out, strung out, worn out, burned out, you name it. Anything that ends with the word out. They're heavy. They're heavier than any generation I've ever seen before them. And so maybe the last thing they need when they step inside the house from school that day is one more reminder of how they're falling short. And how they're not meeting up to expectations. Expectations. Maybe what they need is a reminder of how much they're loved and how much they're cared for and how everything is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Sometimes the things that we make mountains out of as parents, man, they're molehills. They're so small. Sorry, I chased a rabbit there. While his prayer expresses the truth about the Lord, Jonah's hypocritical, self-righteous behavior throughout this book forms a strong contrast with his prayer here in chapter, chapter 2. Even in chapter 2, it is still questionable whether or not Jonah is actually demonstrating true repentance. This is especially true in light of how we see Jonah later in the book, which we're going to get to in weeks to come. But for you, those of you that know the story, you know that Jonah went, finally, to Nineveh, But even after that, he was kind of like, all right, God, I did what you told me to do. Now blast them. It's just kind of who Jonah was, it seemed like. But despite all of this, God dealt with Jonah throughout his life graciously. God heard Jonah's prayers. God saved him from drowning. God saved him from the belly of a giant fish. Jonah found himself in a sticky, stormy situation, for sure. But God was able to use that sticky and stormy situation for Jonah's good. As we will see in coming weeks, the Ninevites were about as lost as a people could be. And yet, God showed them mercy as well. So what do these two things mean for us? What does the whole of Scripture mean for us? I mean, we see in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from Old Testament to New, story after story after story of God doing this for people. This is what it means. It means that sometimes it is when we are in our stormiest of seasons, when we are as lost as we can be, that we finally cry out to him. I have a saying that I've used for many years, and it sounds something like this. Sometimes we have to be flat on our back before we're finally willing to look up. It's in moments like these that the tone of our prayers change a bit, just like Jonah's did. The scriptures address this very thing. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. This is the message transliteration. It says, distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets, end up on a deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? You're more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible, looked at from any angle you've come out of this with a purity of heart. And that is what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote the letter. My primary concern was not for the one who did the wrong, or even the one who was wronged, but for you, that you would realize and act upon the deep, deep ties between us before God. That's what happened, and we felt just great. Here's the good news, church. The good news is, and it's written all throughout Scripture, it's threaded in there, in and out, woven in and out, all over, is that God never leaves us or forsakes us. It's written all over Scripture. Even when we give up on God, which we do time and time and time again, He doesn't give up on us. God hears the cries of our heart. God reaches down and pulls us out of the pit. God rescues us. I heard a story once about a young man. You may have heard this story story as well who literally came from everything, had all the things, any of the pleasures, any of the riches that the world would impart upon a man, this man had. And yet it still wasn't enough. And so he went to his father and he said, Father, my plan is to move away from your home. Will you bless me now with my inheritance? And the father agreed, reluctantly, but he agreed. And the young man went off, into the world, into the world that he had grown to love, and quickly squandered every bit of what his father had given him. It wasn't long before he found himself the low man on the totem pole, a man who had once experienced all the riches the world had to offer, had nothing but the clothes on his back, and even those were worn and were torn. In fact, he found himself sharing a meal with pigs. And the man said to himself, you know, this is ridiculous. Even the servants at my father's castle have fit far better than I do. So I will return to my father, and I will beg my father's forgiveness, and I will ask my father, Father, will you please allow me to come and live in your castle as one of your servants? And so we did. But as this story goes, the young man was still a ways off when the father saw the son. And the father didn't walk. The father didn't trot. The father jumped and ran to the son and embraced him and kissed him and put on him the finest robe and said to him, my son, you have returned. You were lost, but now you are found. It's the story of the prodigal son. And the main point of that story is that God, as our heavenly Father, hears his children when we cry out to him in distress. Despite our guilt, despite God's being judge and just, which he is, he still chooses to impart his grace and his mercy and his love. God answers us in our guilty distress to help us become merciful like he is. God answers us in mercy to make us merciful. We see in the book of Jonah that God's mercy is not confined to Israel, but extends to anybody who will listen and trust him. Anyone who will repent of their sin. And he wants to use us, the church, his body, to deliver that message to a broken world. This week, my heart breaks for the children and the teenagers in our community. This week, my heart breaks for the parents and the family and the friends of these students. This week, my heart breaks for our school system, for our administrators and our teachers and our faculty. This week, my heart breaks for us. But this is what I know. This is what I know. I know that in spite of all of that, I can stand on the promises of Christ my King. I can stand on the promises of a holy, loving, and by the way, living God who is active even in a dark, fallen, and and desperate world. He is there, He is present. And church, it's time that we stop, as a community of faith, pointing the finger. It's time that we stop saying, this is a you problem. It's time that we stop saying, this is the school's problem. This is, this is a teenager's problem. This is a family's problem. And it's time we start saying, you know what, this is a community's problem. And in this community are the presence of people who are saved by grace who are in love with Jesus more than anything else in this world, and who possess a message of light and love and life and hope that this entire world needs to hear. It's time that we stop keeping it a secret. It's time that we stop holding it back, that we stop being apologetic for it. I don't want to tell people about Jesus because I'm afraid of what they might say. You know what? I want to tell people about Jesus because I'm afraid of what they might do they don't know him if they don't have the hope that he brings this world is ugh, it's ugly it's hard i find myself in that all the times and there are days when i wouldn't i don't think i'd be able to get myself out of bed let alone step outside the door if it wasn't for the hope that i have in jesus christ so what do you do when you don't have that what do you do when you don't have that church we got to rise up And I don't mean Anderson Hills. I mean the church of this community has to rise up. we got to take a stand. And we got to say, enemy, take your lies and go on down the road. Because there's nothing here but truth. It's time. So we're going to spend some time praying about that today. As we've done the last couple of weeks, we're just going to have two or three minutes here. Eric's going to play. And we're just going to give you time. Quiet where you are to pray. I'm going to get us started right now, God. Lord, Heavenly Father, our hearts are heavy. Our minds are heavy, God. we know the plans for you or that you have for us, and they are plans to prosper us and not to harm us. They are plans to give us a hope and a future. And, God, we stand on those promises today. But, God, we also know that there's a world around us that, that doesn't know of this. They've not heard this truth. No one has shared it with them. And, God, we just, we, we want to just say, you know what, it's time to let down our guard. It's time to... Um, to stop apologizing, it's time to stop taking a back seat, it's time to stop pointing everyone to everything else but the cross, and God, we just, we want to proclaim the message. We want to proclaim the message that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God, help us to spread that message today. Convict us of where we are. God, if there's anyone in this room, Father, who they themselves need that message this morning, they need to hear a message of hope, a message that ends not in death, but in resurrection, in life abundant and eternal. God, then my prayer is that they would seek out another person in this room, myself, someone else, God, that they would say, tell me about this story because I need to hear it. God, there is redemption in you. There is resurrection in you. There is life in you. And we proclaim it now in Jesus' name.